You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. I always, do you think that I should (laughs) like say what the shit, like, hey, welcome back to CXMH, a podcast about faith and mental health. Sure. I'm one of your hosts, Robert, who is a therapist, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, who's a social worker and an associate dean, professor, associate dean of (laughs) research. That was garbage. (laughs) Well, it's Friday. Holly, how are you doing today? Did I mess up your title? Can you correct me here? No, you're great. I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay, Robert. It is, yes, the title is that I'm the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at the Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. How's that? Okay, see, that's too many words. That's I know hard. it's hard. I got, I got the, I got the core of it. Right. You, you, did, you did, you did. You got the heartbeat. Is important and you've earned it. Uh, I'm not that at all. So. Uh, well, thank you. How are you doing on this Friday morning <laughs> that we're recording? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Today is Callie and Oliver's last day of this semester. Woohoo! And so, nice. yeah. And so we've been finding little ways to celebrate this morning and um, just try to start finding ways to, I guess, to transition into the summer. But that's kind of what we've been yeah. doing today. What about you? How are yeah. you doing? And what have y'all been up to? Yeah, I'm doing well. We, uh, you know, Gray uh, doesn't go to formal school, so there's none of that to celebrate. I know our schools in Georgia finished last week. Mm. It's interesting. I know you were talking about do like celebrating that. Do you have traditions? Like I know people have, you know, mm-hmm. things that they have always done for when school ends. Do you have, do y'all have traditions that you have always done that you're now trying to figure out, you know, kind of how to do? Man, that is a great question. So we do. We have, I mean, first off, we have like a little sign that we do that, you know, on the first day of school, we have, you know, some details about each of my kiddos. And then on the last day, there's like some other questions about the both of them. And usually we fill that out the night before the last day of school and then take their picture before they go off to school and um yeah. and so do the side by side yeah 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 so yeah. um and i love that because i love capturing some of these little things like their favorite song and favorite book and the things they want to do over the summer and um, favorite memory of the year and things like that but yeah we moved slow today and we had a nice big brunch <laughs> and we filled it out together sitting at the kitchen table in between Callie's like online lessons and things she had to fill out and Mm -hmm. Um, so usually that's normally what we do. And then, um, what we've kind of also been doing is like on Callie's last day of school or the day after or so we pack up the car and we head out to South Carolina and you know, this year that is not what we're doing. So, um, so I was just telling you before how Callie and I spent some time yesterday laying out on the hammock and trying to dream up what, you know, what we're going to want to do this summer and how to, fill our time in ways that, you know, are, are just good for our family and new rhythms and just kind of living into this next transition, this next wave of uncertainty and what this feels like for our family moving into the summer. So yeah. What about, what about you? I mean, I know Grace still too little for those like traditions, but is there anything that you used to do as a kid growing up? 
So not at the end. That's what I was trying to think mm. of when you had texted me earlier that you were having like a end of the end of the school year brunch. I thought, oh, that that's pretty cool. Yeah. But we used to always, my parents always took and got us ice cream on the first day of school. Oh, fun. And then like into, into college, they would – Venmo didn't exist, but they would like, you mm. know, deposit 15 bucks into our bank accounts for me and my brother for ice cream. And so mm. we did that with Gray when he started daycare back, I guess, the fall of last year. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, last fall. Yeah. Um, we took him and he didn't, un- he didn't understand. Right, him, right, we took right. Him and took a bunch of pictures of him, you know, eating ice cream and stuff like that. Mm. And so we did that at the beginning, which I think is a cool one to kind of carry on a because I get some ice cream, but also <laughs> – like we did that every year. Like yeah. even on the first day of my last semester of grad school, my dad sent Brooke some money, like transferred Aww. it over. And so I think keeping that is something that we'll probably try and do, but nothing on the end. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's something as Gray goes into actual grades at some point, uh, maybe we'll have to try and think about. That's awesome. Yeah, it's – I mean, it's hard. And each – what I'm realizing too with Callie and Oliver is that each of them kind of want to do different things to end the year. But, you know, we're just going to be creative yeah. and spend some time this transition of 2020 to spend a little time to think through and figure out what we want to do this summer so yeah. that it feels like summer and doesn't just feel like a, a, a constant continuation, you know. Like there's yeah, actual, we're all just still in the Jeremy yeah, time here. Yeah, man, it's so wild. Well, should we shift into talking a little bit about this week's episode? Why don't you tell us a little bit about this week's episode? Yeah, sure. So this week we have Melody Moisey on. Um, she has just recently published a book called The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life. And I had actually come across Melody's work a little while ago. I, I think I've talked about on the show before. I just, I love Rumi's poetry. I had discovered it in um, spring of 2010 from one of my mentors um, in grad school who had introduced me to Rumi's work. And um, Rumi's poetry is just woven throughout my teaching and through some of the writing I do. And I just really love his work. So anyway, so that is kind of what, you know, got me curious about this book. And then somehow we had just connected. I don't remember. I think maybe it was Twitter or something, but it was just, Melody has just been such a great voice to get to learn from and listen to. And her experience um, regarding mental health um, and mental illness, particularly with her um, diagnosis with bipolar disorder and the ways in which Rumi's poetry has kind of spoken to her and she's kind of worked through his poetry, translating it and writing about it. I don't know. I just, I, I adore Melody. I adore her book. I cannot say enough good about it. She speaks so beautifully about her experiences and about Rumi's work overall. And I can't say enough good about it. She, throughout this book, she takes these general human conditions that we all tend to struggle with. And she pairs Rumi's poetry with each of them in such a beautiful way while weaving in her story. Yeah. What What about you? Are there any takeaways or any, any thoughts you had about this one? Yeah, I think... You know, a lot of listeners are probably in a similar space as me where you say, okay, I've maybe heard of Rumi. I've, there's a couple things that, like quotes that I could think of, but I'm not super familiar 
will I still enjoy listening to this episode? Mm. And I'll say like, absolutely, right? So yeah. uh, this is a conversation where I went in thinking like, I don't know a ton about Rumi. And so will I enjoy this as much as all of our conversations? And mm-hmm. I absolutely did, right? I mean, yeah. like you said, she really humanizes it and talks a lot about her story and things like that. And um, I just, I loved it. And so I'll yeah. say, you know, even if you say, I'm not, I don't really know too much of his poetry, definitely stick around. Melody does a phenomenal job. It's not all about this poet that you've, you know, may or may not be familiar about or anything yeah. like that. It's, it's really a good conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, we will get out of the way um, so that y'all can listen to this episode with Melody Moisey. Enjoy, y'all. Hey, this week we have Melody Moisey on. She is an Iranian-American Muslim author, attorney, activist, and a visiting professor of creative nonfiction at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She is a graduate of Wesleyan University and Emory University School of Law and School of Public Health. She's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, and she's appeared on NPR, CNN, BBC, PBS, and more. Melody lives between Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Wilmington, North Carolina. She is the author of Haldol and Hyacinths, A Bipolar Life, and War on Error, Real Stories of American Muslims. And her latest book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is called The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life. Melody, thank you so much for joining us today. It is so good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Holly. Absolutely. Is there anything that we missed in your bio? <laughs> no. I think it's funny. I when people read my bio sometimes, I'm like, who is that person <laughs> that you're reading this bio? <laughs> That's awesome. It's funny. I mean, especially as someone with a mental health issue. Like there are years of my life that are completely empty, but I sound really good the way you introduced me. Mm. Um, but like you don't you don't introduce the year, the empty years. Those are those are Nothing. Ha- I mean, I got up and brushed my teeth and took showers and stuff, you know, so that was a success. But uh, yeah, but there's yeah, that's- I think people don't think about that. Right. Like it's not yeah. often thought about that. All of that. There's mm. a lot of other stuff there, too. Amen. I wonder what it would be like if we all started writing really the most honest, bi- like anti bias, yes. you know, <laughs> yes. where it's like, I love it. Welcome, Robert. He made nachos yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I feel show. like that's what all our bios are going to become really yes. soon. I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fair point. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, we definitely want to dive into the Rumi prescription today, but I would love for you to tell us a bit about your backstory that kind of led up to writing this book, you know, touching on the previous books that you've written and what inspired you to write this most recent one. Well, so two things. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio as an Iranian-American Muslim, and that experience, like, it it was a really great place to grow up, and I think the division that I saw happening after the 2016 election especially uh, was something for, you know, for a lot of people that uh, activated them, and it certainly activated me in a lot of ways, Uh, but none of it would have been possible if I hadn't already had this uh, intense mystical experience uh, that happened Uh, while I was acutely manic. So having bipolar disorder, it happened to coincide for me and for a whole lot of other people as well with this uh, mystical side uh, where I was able to have these beautiful mystical experiences. And I've had two uh, in my life that have been extraordinary because they've, I've felt more connected to 
every living thing on earth uh, than mm -hmm. I ever had before. It, it was very much like people describe psychedelic experiences, though I've never done, I don't even drink alcohol, <laughs> like I don't do drugs. Uh, but it, it was a beautiful experience. And what happened was the medical community sort of stole that from me by saying, this is not valid. This is hyper-religiosity. Uh, there's an actual word for it. Uh, and I wasn't being hyper-religious when I was in the hospital. As a, as a Muslim, there's a certain way we pray. And I think the mental health community in Dayton, Ohio was not, or in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was also hospitalized. I don't think they were particularly familiar with that. Uh, and they'd only seen it maybe on television. So to them, that seemed threatening, right? Um, but mm. I don't, I think it's all people of faith. I, I've, I've talked to people of all different sorts of faiths. Uh, and the mental health community is not good at uh, helping us through that. Uh, so that was part of the problem. Part of the problem was also the faith community was not so great either. Um, my faith community was like, some of them actually told me, you know, this is jinn which basically means like you're possessed, you need an exorcism. Um, and I was like, nope, not possessed, I need medication, you know? So it was like the the ignorance on both sides was intense and impressive. And as somebody, if you're in the midst of a manic episode or, you know, you're dealing with a serious mental illness, you lose a lot of credibility really quickly. So in any case, being after the experience of being hospitalized, that was the first time that I actually started taking this poetry seriously, that I started understanding this poetry that my dad had been reciting to me my entire life and that I had taken for granted and rolled my eyes about every time he recited a poem. Mm. Uh, and I, I think like a lot of kids, I, I was just a brat about it. I just, this this is basically my, Rumi is my dad's addiction. Uh, and like a lot of children of addicts, I grew to resent the object of my father's addiction, which was this beautiful poetry. Uh, that every lesson I've ever learned has been accompanied from him, has been accompanied with one of these poems. So eventually, once I had that mystical experience, suddenly I knew what Rumi was talking about. I, and not be, I, I had lost the ability to read at that point af after the mystical and manic episode. And I, for days I couldn't read. And that was when just intuitively I was able to realize how deeply connected I am, and all of us are, to one another and to something greater than us, but also that some, something that lives within us. Uh, we have different names for it, but that doesn't mean it's different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I yeah. totally do. Yep. Well, I, I love that you kind of started uh, moving us towards talking about those mystical experiences. And I do, I actually have some questions about that a little bit later, but I, I do want to kind of start with just in talking about the role that your father had in this book and what a beautiful role he had, like continually offering this deep wisdom throughout. And in fact, I was going back through some of my highlights and I think your dad may have made up um, like quotes that he had may have taken up a, a large majority of my highlighting in the book. So, oh, I'm going to um, tell him that. He'll be so happy to hear that. Please do. Please thank him for his wisdom and the gift of his wisdom that's threaded through this book. But I want to not like, only- I feel like I'm, we should get him on the line. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I just want to get him on the line so he can read some of these verses to us. I mean, but we'll definitely have you, Melody, read some of these. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so as I was, you know, or just as he pulled out these verses <clears throat> of Rumi's poetry, I do want to kind of first pause and just 
create a space for you to tell us a little bit about him and your mom, Jasby, and and who kind of they are um, mm. to you and, and, and in this book. So I'm incredibly lucky that I grew up as the daughter of these two people. Um, my dad, his name is Ahmad, and I've always called him that. And my they're both Iranians. Uh, they both grew up in Iran. They both came to the United States after or I guess during the revolution. I was a fetus during the so-called Islamic revolution. And they came to America as, you know, a dream kind of place uh, where things that weren't possible after the revolution in Iran were hopefully possible here. And their dream was for us to go to school and to have the same education anybody um, else would get uh, with or without a Y chromosome. Uh, And they were very adamant about that. And they raised us with our faith being education. Uh, And I didn't realize until later that that was also Islam uh, within Mm. Islam. You know, I had an Islamic upbringing, but it was very Sufi, very centered around Rumi. Um, And they're just both really extraordinary people. They're both physicians. Uh, My mom is a a pathologist, so she did autopsies. And my dad was an OBGYN, so he delivered babies. So we had both spectrums, like the entire spectrum of life Mm. and death covered uh, between the two of them. So growing up and and seeing them both do work that had purpose, I think was also helpful, especially to see my mom doing it and loving her work as well. So I was very lucky to be raised by these two people uh, and in this country. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I love how you just write about them in this book too. It's so beautiful. So thank you for sharing a little bit with us about them. Thank you. You also write quite a bit about this ancient Persian poet whose name is Rumi, and he has a much longer name that I will let you introduce to our listeners. But I would love for you to tell us a bit about him, who he was, and a little bit about about his poetry for our listeners, particularly in in this link that it has that is deeply grounded in love and, and offers a bridge across so many different religions that I'll touch on a little bit later. But anyways, yeah, tell us about Rumi and who he is. Yeah. So Rumi, who we in Iran, people who speak Farsi, we call him Molana, which means our master. And he's a 13th century Persian Sufi mystic poet. So Sufis are the mystics of Islam, but also you can run into Jewish Sufis. So it's confusing. And there's like all different kinds of Sufis. Um, It's sort of, if you're familiar with uh, Taoism, where they say uh, at the beginning, I think the beginning of the Tao Te Ching is like the Tao that has an ism is not really the Tao. Uh, Sufism is very much the same way, except for now it, it has an ism and <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. But that is basically who he was. He was the first of uh, what we know as the whirling dervishes, though he never, uh, he inspired that order of Sufis, but he he didn't found it. It was founded after his death. So it wasn't that he was saying, come whirl like me. He was very much encouraging people to do what was right for them. And for him, whirling Mm. uh, was a centering act for him. But uh, in terms of there's so much about his life and history that is myth Mm. uh, that we don't even know that a lot of it is legend. Franklin Lewis wrote a great book uh, that's giant and it's all, it's called Rumi. I I believe it's like East and West, something like that. But I think the actual title, I forget the subtitle, but the actual title is Rumi. Uh, But this book is more of a personal 
take on how not just learning his poetry, it's more like because this poetry was so important for my dad, it was a way for me to get to know who he is and connect with him on a, in a, in a really deep spiritual way that I really didn't anticipate, especially because, like I said, I wasn't raised in an incredibly religious household. The religion was education and, like I said, this poetry. So, yeah. So, yeah, the book focuses more on what Rumi has has done for me in my life now and is not so much like a history of his life and uh, my familiarity with it isn't that of an academic. It's just that of somebody who is sort of in love with this poet. <laughs> mm, I love that. I love just the way that you explain that. And I totally, I understand. Like there's just that general understanding of Rumi and, and what he's done for many of us um, on an individual level, but in a group level as well. And um, I think that that's so beautifully paints the picture of who he is. There is one quote that I pulled out that you had written in this book that I think really speaks to the essence of Rumi's poetry and 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 what it offers to us. And you write regarding these bits of poetry, you say they're meant to be applied repeatedly in groups and in unison through song and dance whenever possible beyond superficial worldly divisions toward eternal sacred connections. It is no coincidence, for instance, that this poetry exists in a language relatively free from gender with no she or he, no her or him for Rumi's rhymes live the divine, save no room for petty partitions. Instead, they invite us to tear down our barriers and unite us through love. And then you highlight um, one of your translations where you write of his poetry, where you say, love's nation of origin is separate from all creeds. For the lovers, the beloved comprises all religions and nationalities. Oh. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think we all get that really deep, deep down. Uh, we all get it. That God, the idea even just that God is so small to fit into one tiny religion is almost comical to me um mm. but yeah I think I think humans yeah. need a route you know and religion is is the route that we've created uh, and we're flawed so a lot of our religions and expressions of them are deeply flawed unfortunately mm. yep no yeah. that's really good yeah so you do uh, you write about and we mentioned it a little bit earlier but you write about beautifully, right? Navigating the nuance between a mystical experience and a, a psychiatric episode, which I think, you know, we have a fair amount of mental health care providers who listen to the show, as well as obviously people that work in other areas. Uh, but that might be kind of a jarring thing for them to hear, right? How to understand the difference between those two. Can you talk about those experiences for you and maybe how they differed where, you know, you knew in some cases, hey, I needed immediate care? Yeah. So the thing about these mystical experiences is I, I was never, you know, I'm not a monk. I'm not, I, was, I never trained for this. Uh, so to not train for a mystical experience is not the best place to be. Uh, so most Sufis will basically go through prayer and charity and fasting and a lot of things till they get to the point where they have some sort of mystical experience if they do. I had not done any of that stuff. I just stumbled into this mystical experience, uh, which we call fennel, 
which means the annihilation of the ego, but it's the same thing in all these mystical traditions. The idea is to annihilate your ego because the idea that there's a self separate from the beloved uh, or the divine as we recognize it is a, a, that's a true delusion. Uh, so I think what ended up happening for me is initially this beautiful mystical experience, but then it morphed. Uh, the first time I was able to have it without it morphing into anything, but it was a very short experience. Um, the second time I was not so lucky. The second time I fell into clinical mania and I needed medication. Uh, I'm a strong proponent of medication for people who need it like me. Um, mm -hmm. and I also needed spiritual guidance and that's what was really hard for the American healthcare system to understand that something could be simultaneously a clinical experience and also a mystical one, uh, or just a spiritual one at all. Right. So this in this strong desire to separate the clinical from the spiritual, uh, and say, you know, these are, these are two very separate things and they can't overlap. Uh, it's, you know, life isn't like that. It's not, it's not that easy. And it's frustrating mm -hmm. to talk about when I first initially wrote this book, since my last book was a memoir about having bipolar disorder, some people were like, oh, have you cured it with Rumi? And I'm like, no, please don't get the wrong message here. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that I've cured my bipolar with Rumi. I'm just saying that poetry has a place. Faith has a place. And our medical system doesn't recognize that, even though study after study shows that people of faith do better when they're allowed to practice, when they're allowed to engage in whatever ritual is meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet still we we look down on that. The, the clinical community, just the medical community looks down on that uh, as being less than or not valid, even though there are these studies that are, you know, controlled. Uh, they, they still mm -hmm. don't really uh, allow us to have those experiences without some skepticism on their part. Oh my gosh, sister, you are like just preaching to me right now. <laughs> this is this is actually like the heartbeat of the research that I do around equipping mental health care providers to pay attention to client spirituality, recognizing exactly what you just said, that we have data that shows that it actually can improve outcomes if we pay attention to it. So And God bless I you for doing that. that work because it's so important that there is actual data that people can look to because they won't believe us on faith. Um, I know. And, yeah. and this is, it's, it's just really important that that work gets done in a serious way by people who are qualified by actual, you know, PhDs like you. So mm. um, it matters. Well, thank you. That means a lot. I thought there was one point in the book where you write about this so beautifully from, from your perspective and your experience, um, where you really put out this gorgeous call for us to consider spirituality in mental health treatment. Um, and if it's okay, I'd um, actually, I'd love for you to read this bit. Sure. Though the conscious mind may be able to forget being torn from its roots, the soul cannot Trying to heal a broken brain while dismissing a fractured soul is like trying to build a house while dismissing the shoddy foundation. Build your house on quicksand and it will sink no matter how sturdy or stunning the roof. For all the pain my mind has caused me, for all its extraordinary and ordinary fissures, I cannot dismiss the fact that it has also summoned a light transforming my wounds, guiding my steps, imparting a distinct spiritual hunger, if not aptitude, a compassion, a creativity, a connectedness. 
I love that so much. I think it so beautifully illustrates why we do need to be paying attention to this area of our lives and mental health treatment. And I think it's such a gift that you were able to wrap words around that so beautifully. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. The the reference there, um, and I think maybe the listeners would want to know, is this uh, poem that Coleman Barks has translated, the wound is a place where the light enters you, um, mm-hmm. which is not exactly precise to the translation, but my translation is your wounds may summon the light here too, but the sacred light does not come from you. And I, I should have, honestly, it, it does and it doesn't. It's it's the idea that only you can heal yourself, that you, you come from nothing, uh, is what Rumi is speaking out against here. He's saying that you're wherever you're wounded, it, it calls the beloved to you. But don't think you're the one doing the healing of yourself mm-hmm. uh, because that's, that's where ego gets in the way, right? Like if we think we're the ones responsible. And I think that's why there's such a conflict between the mental health community and the spiritual community uh, because one wants to be right and they think to be right, the other has to be wrong. They don't realize that they could possibly both be right. Yeah, no, that's mm. – I. Yep. (laughs) No, I think that's so good. So in the book, you have in each of these chapters like a diagnosis, which is more of a general human condition diagnosis. And then you have these translations that you've done of Rumi's poetry to pair with it. And you call these the prescription for each of these. Mm -hmm. I want to make it very clear that in this book that you're not saying, and, and this is what I'm picking up, is that you're not saying that the poetry will replace medication particularly for these clinical issues. And in fact, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you, you even include medication alongside poetry and prayer and helping you heal while emphasizing again, that that distinction between clinical level illnesses and more common like societal level illnesses that as you know, are rooted in ego and ambition and prompting fear and insecurity are, are different. So you talk about these two as being different. Do you mind just unpacking that a little bit? And then we'll go into some of the chapters that you write about. Sure. Yeah. The I think ultimately for all of the prescriptions, it comes down to love. They're all different incarnations of love. And uh, all the diagnoses are different incarnations of ego and fear. Uh, as an as a kind of expression of ego, mm-hmm. Rumi has this notion that you know you're already so much. There's a poem where he says, "I'll, I'll read it in Farsi so you can hear the music of it." Zar talab gashti khod aval zar bodi, which means you went out in search of gold far and wide, but all along you were gold on the inside. So the thing that we're seeking. Gosh. Um, is already within us. And that, that's, you know, that, that's why you see in children, right? Like they, children already know these things intuitively. Uh, we're taught out of this, right? Like I, I've, it's hard to meet a child who doesn't have a sense of wonder. And, and to me, that's, that comes from something. And I think what's divided people so much is giving it a name and saying, this is God. And if you don't believe in that, there's, there's something wrong with you. Uh, as opposed to saying, what do you believe in? Do you believe in nature? Do you believe in science? Do you believe in something bigger than you? And whatever you name it, it's a force that you can feel that's that's part of your intuition. And unfortunately, like w- we are a very left brain kind of society. 
that mm-hmm. and and I think that fulfills a lot of masculine stereotypes. I think it has a lot to do with misogyny, just what is acceptable and what is considered powerful and strong, right? Like being vulnerable and showing emotion is considered a sign of weakness in our culture and, and in a whole lot of cultures. And I think that ends up hurting us. And, and my solution to all of these these different diagnoses, and it's not exactly a solution, uh, but the prescriptions that Rumi is providing, they aren't saying, you know, stop being angry. <laughs> like it, it, he doesn't say stop mm-hmm. being angry. He says, feel it, like go into that. What is that anger really about? And once you dig deeper into it, a lot of times you'll find, and anger is what I have the most trouble with, but uh, you'll find that that there's ego underneath that. I tell a story in the book about giving a talk at a LGBTQ Muslim retreat where I was the only uh, straight cisgender woman there. And I was talking about mental health. And I've been an ally of the LGBTQ Muslim community for a long time, which is why obviously they invited me. But I remember mm-hmm. there were some people who who took issue with my being there. And I, re- I remember one girl coming up to me, one woman, a young woman, and and she sort of looked like me. And I call her in, in the book my doppelganger. <laughs> so she mm-hmm. comes up to yep. me, big hair, brown skin. Like she she looks a lot like me. So it's almost like a mirror. And she's so angry. She's livid that I'm even there and asking, you know, I need to make space. And she's right in so many ways. But I'm so angry that like, how dare you? I've worked for like the only death threats that I've received are a result of my work. Uh, with the LGBTQ community as an ally and specifically the Muslim community. So I feel like I've earned the right to be there. But my anger wasn't about the cause or injustice or anything like that. My anger in that moment was just like, why are you being mean to me? Like, I'm better than this. Mm-hmm. I deserve better than this. And, it, you know, it's it, when you go down to the real source of it, especially really strong emotions, Often, uh, you'll find that ego is at the heart of it. And that, that's mm-hmm. tough for me because I, I have a whole lot of anger that I think, and I'm very righteous about it. <laughs> like, I think I'm right. And, and that's so dangerous. And I think especially, you know, after 2016, a lot of us had this sense of righteousness that wasn't earned. And part of writing the book, too, is in this moment of such great division uh, is just to say, stop it. Like, I, I'm so sick of it. And I, I'm i very progressive. I'm very liberal. I have friends who voted for Trump. I have one friend who's a Muslim woman who voted for Trump. She grew up in West Virginia. I grew up in Ohio. We're very good friends. This has not torn us apart, although a lot of our mutual friends have unfriended her. And I just don't mm. think that's a solution. I don't, I, I know that her, the way she voted was a result of some trauma that she's experienced. But I don't see that as a reasoning for sort of suspending the love I have for her. I feel like Mm. it's greater than that. And I think we have suspended love and we want medals for it. Like we've said, you know, I'm disowning my uncle because he's, you know, he voted for Trump or he's this way or that way. And I I just – I don't know if that's a solution. And I I do. I I really don't think that it is a solution. I think it's – it's hurtful. And I and I know a lot of I've heard this from white Christian Americans like telling me that they've disowned their Islamophobic family member. And I'm like, mm. I don't want you to do that. I would rather you say, hey, I have friends who are Muslim. Maybe you should meet them. You know, and I'm not saying like I don't want them to 
intellectualize with (laughs) their Islamophobic uncle. But I do think there is a way to reach these people and it's not by cutting them out of our lives. And that I think Mm -hmm. is what people are doing. And unfortunately, like for my white Christian American allies, you have so much power. You have so much privilege to be able to talk to Mm -hmm. your uncle because he's not going to listen to me. You know, so why can't you be that bridge? I understand it's work for you, but it's also work for me to deal with your uncle's hate. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in a position where I can change that, but you are. And I know it's hard work, but it's worth it. And and that to me is what real allyship is about. That's so, so good. It's, I think those two things are so linked, right? The second half of what you just said, and you started it by talking about getting underneath our like heightened emotional reactions, right? And saying, okay, if I can get underneath this, what's, what's under mm-hmm. here? What are the bigger things happening? And I think that's the part that is so hard. You know, if you see something and you say, hey, so-and-so posted this, therefore like we're done because that made me super angry and that's so easy to do. And Mm -hmm. there are certainly like, I'm going to look at things less or whatever. I mean, like I barely go on Facebook because it tends to be a different breed of thing than my Twitter feed, right? So Mm -hmm. like, you know, everyone's trying to stay healthy, but then not just saying, okay, I'm done with you as like a whole human being because of this, right? But can we get underneath there Mm -hmm. and like find kind of the like, if we dig down deep enough, we're all on the same planet, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I and I really believe that and it's been helpful for me to realize that a lot of the racism and misogyny and all of the things that affect my life directly as an Iranian American Muslim woman, all of these things affect my life, so I'm invested in them. But I when I realize that somebody else's racism isn't about me, but it's about pain that they have. It's about how easy it is to blame me or my parents or immigrant, you know, like my parents took your job. Well, you know, this this idea that, you know, you lost your job, there's pain there. Um, And as a result of that, it's easy to just put it on someone else. So I think that's just a fault in logic. I don't think that's a fault in spirit. But when you turn it into that, what ends up happening is it becomes a fault in spirit. You know, I think we push people in directions, uh, whether we know it or not. And right now, I think sort of the, uh, and I'm as woke as they come. I'm proud of being woke. I teach a lot of millennials, you know, but I do think this obsession with microaggressions, for instance, may not be helping us in the macroaggression sense, right? Like if we're obsessed so much on these failures in language, Uh, that somebody may be using language that is outdated or incorrect uh, and immediately labeling that racist or sexist or whatever, I'm not sure that really helps us because I'm not sure that gets to the core of the issue in the first place. And it immediately shuts down conversation. So I, I think the labeling of it that quickly without coming at it with love and kindness and with some sense of there is trauma behind this. There is pain behind this. And I understand pain. I am connected with pain. So if you accept that each human being, each animal, like all of us are interconnected, there's a part, a divine part within all of us. You have to recognize that if you hurt another person, then you're hurting yourself, you know? And I, Hmm. and I think of sort of someone like Donald Trump, who I would say denies my humanity as a person in a lot of ways, right? 
I he wants to ban people from my country, from my religion. Like he's not very interested in that. But I also am like, what a poor little insecure man that that this is what he's obsessing <laughs> with. Like there's something or if you think of like really homophobic people, right, who end up being homosexual in the end, right? Like that is is a trope at this point. You know what I mean? So mm. when you're getting mad at somebody for being so hateful, it may be that what they hate the most has nothing to do with you, but is something inside of them that they hate. Uh, and they need to deal with that. And if you can help them uh, by being a mirror for them and letting them see who they really are, like what a gift to be able to do that. And that's that's what true friendship is about. And Rumi says the faithful are mirrors for one another. And that, that's my, my father was a mirror for me and I became a mirror for him. And I think in every relationship you, you can accomplish that, uh, but it takes work. It, it takes effort. Oh, that's really good. Mm. I'm glad you looped in that piece about being a mirror for others. And mm. I think you articulated all of that so well when, you know, many of those topics that you unpacked just now could easily have been very tricky to navigate. I think just the way that you unpacked it, you just articulated it all so well. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for the opportunity. So we write within each of the chapters, as we kind of mentioned earlier, there's a diagnosis and a prescription. And I, I mean, I wish that we could go through every single one of these, but I'm really going to encourage our listeners to go pick up the book and walk through each of these as Melody talks about the diagnosis of wanting and isolation and haste and depression and anxiety and anger and fear and disappointment and pride. And she unpacks so beautifully the, you know, your journey, your pilgrimage, right, through this mm -hmm. alongside what Rumi kind of notes or nods to each of these like ego diagnoses, I guess. I don't know how, or human condition diagnoses. Yeah, yeah. Thank so, you. So, yeah, tell me, I'd be curious, like which of these, maybe which of these was the most difficult to write and maybe which one was the most life-giving as you wrote through it? Mm. I think, you know, the, the depression chapter – I talk about a friend of mine uh -huh. who I lost to suicide. Mm. So that was, mm -hmm. and I actually recently went to Greensboro and spoke. This, this was the last event I could do before uh, we were all staying at home. Uh, mm. And I spoke there about, and I, and this is the only place where I actually read part of that chapter about her. And she, writing about her was really, really hard. Um, and my dad's notion of my losing this friend to depression and him saying, you know, she wasn't trying, um, she wasn't trying to kill herself. She was trying to kill the depression. And the problem is you can't kill the depression without killing yourself. You have to welcome it. You have to welcome every emotion, every emotional guest, um, mm -hmm. into your home. And, and he, Rumi has a poem that I know a lot of people are familiar with. And my translation mm -hmm. of it was, Welcome every guest, no matter how grotesque. Be as hospitable to calamity as to ecstasy, to anxiety as to tranquility. Today's misery sweeps your home clean, making way for tomorrow's felicity. So that means you, you welcome every single one of those guests, right? 
and you're hospitable to them, right? And I and I've never really rolled out the red carpet for my depression. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of it. And certainly I wasn't a fan of what it did to my friend Mary. Um and being able to see that there was a lesson in that, that there's a lesson in all of these emotions and that it's not you're not gonna read, you know, you're not gonna read chapter four about depression and then be like, okay, I'm never gonna be depressed again. <laughs> That's not happening. Uh, mm. but that this is a constant uh, effort that that you have to really work hard to welcome every guest, and so that that chapter was really hard for me to write because of that. Uh, my relationship with Mary uh, and losing her, uh, but I think yeah. one of the most helpful chapters for me, and and all of them were helpful in different ways, but the one around anger because I I so naturally go there, um, mm-hmm. and it's what. I've made a career out of. I'm an activist, you know. I have my anger has led me to. Uh, I mean, that's why I write because I just get really angry about mm. stuff, and that's how I make sense of it. Uh, so obviously, there's a use to anger. You know, I'm a huge fan of Audre Lord. I believe that anger has a use, uh, just like all of these emotions have a use. But you can't let it use you, and I was letting it use me. I was getting so angry to the point that it was burning me on the inside. And I realized that it was because I was focusing my fight against injustice on my hatred for oppressors instead of my love for the oppressed. And Mm. and so I didn't have to change my actions. I was still fighting for the oppressed. I was fighting injustice, but I was doing it from a completely different perspective, recognizing that love is our most powerful weapon against injustice, not anger. Anger is useful. Uh, but love is so much more powerful. You can't win someone over with your anger, but you can win someone over with your love. Oh, that's so good. That's mm. really good. Mm. I appreciate you. Um, your nod towards your friend Mary, and I am just I'm terribly sorry about you know that that had happened, and um, thank you that she is no longer with us. I think the way that you wrote about her honors her so beautifully. And one of the things that you had just kind of mentioned and and noted was this idea of welcoming every guest and that you don't want to warmly welcome depression. It's not the thing (laughs) that you're like, yes, you're here. Like, um, but I, but you did write in one, at one point in there that you said, welcoming the guest does not mean you love depression. It means that you feel it so that, uh, or so you, can let it teach you something. Um, right. I just thought that was so beautiful how you phrased that. So, and yeah. I, that chapter on anger, I mean, I could feel it. I felt it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think we're all feeling it right now. I think there's a <laughs> yes. lot of anger, you know, and this moment right now is such a great example of all of, all of these lessons mm. in here. Like the chapter two is about isolation, um, so just being in this moment, it's, it's kind of funny. I feel like God is laughing at my ambition because it's not like I got rid of my ambition, <laughs> but it used to be, you know, as an author, you could count on Amazon to deliver a book in two days, but it's like now it'll take 20, <laughs> you know, like how mm-hmm. does that feel? How do, yeah. can, can you slow down enough for 20 days to get a hardcover yeah. book? Um, and I never thought, you know, I would release the, this book in the midst of something like this. And I, um, I'm sure, you know, there, I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of people in the same position. Uh, but I do feel really blessed and lucky that the message of this book is useful right now in mm-hmm. ways uh, that it might not have been otherwise, you know. So uh, I'm glad mm. that people are finding comfort in it. 
Yeah. Well, one thing that we like to ask people is about their their hope for their work, right? So whether it's specific to this book or your work as a whole, or maybe both, what would you say, you know, you're putting all this time and energy in? What is your hope for this book? Hmm. My hope is that it helps people feel less alone, that it provides a community, and it helps people create their own communities. Yeah. Yeah, and it not just for, you know, obviously I have my hopes specifically for my fellow Iranians and Muslims who are reading this in terms of reclaiming this inheritance uh, that has been taken from us in ways, you know, a lot of the translations of Rumi really erase Islam from his poetry, uh, but hopefully being able to infuse that back in and allow people who have been traumatized to be able to look at their own culture, their own background, and find healing and resilience and hope in that. And I, my, my hope is also that it doesn't, you know, for Iranians like me, yes, I want them to come back to Rumi. I want them to come back to this literary inheritance we have. Mm. But my hope is that if you're Irish and you read it, it, it takes you back to your Irish heritage. Um, it takes you back because there, there are mystics, there are Rumis in every culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just we, I, I think there's a special kind of healing you find when you go back to your own roots like that. And I certainly did. And we're, it's really, and I write in the book about intergenerational trauma, uh, which, you know, we love to talk about as academics and stuff, but uh, we don't often talk about uh, intergenerational resilience. And I think that's just as powerful and just as important and deserves as much attention. Uh, Same with, you know, post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. Uh, There are ways that we can respond to our experiences, even intergenerationally, uh, that can be healing instead of traumatizing. Uh, and I hope people find healing where they knew trauma before. Oh, that's so good. Well, friends, you can connect with Melody at MelodyMoisey.com or on Twitter at MelodyMoisey and on Instagram at Melody.Moisey. We'll have the links for all of those in our show notes. Um, you can connect with Robert at Robert-Vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. You can connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter or Instagram at hollyoxhandler. Melody, thank you so very much for joining us today. This was such a gift to get to listen to you and learn from you. Yeah. Do you have any thank closing thoughts? Thank you so thoughts? much. Oh, thank you. I just, I just appreciate you having me on and just addressing this topic. I appreciate the work that you're doing. It's really important that we be able to blend science and spirituality in ways that we haven't before Uh, and it's going to take people who know the science to do it so I'm really grateful to you for that thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast want to score some major brownie points leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions comments and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com